Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor here and so excited that you have joined us this morning as uh, we conclude this series that we've been in for most of the summer uh, called Life in the Minors. And uh, my purpose in this particular message series as we've walked through four of the 12 minor prophets um, is for us to see, first of all, kind of the theme of the God-man narrative all the way back in even the Old Testament. And uh, so that you can see how God was weaving his story uh, even back then. And uh, then the other part is to uh, give you some life application. There are actually, we, we don't realize it sometimes, there's actually some real life tools that these uh, men who we really don't know that much about, uh, can, we can have and we can apply to our lives. And then the other reason was, is really to spur you on. Um, to maybe investigate further and read these minor prophets whose typically their names are not that familiar to us and where they come from are obscure places and at first glance when we read their messages, let's face it, uh, it can be a bit confusing. And uh, so that has been our purpose this summer. It's interesting, regardless of the fact that these men uh, may be obscure and may come from different places and their message seems confusing, God used these men to really impact the world and really drive home the message of what God was doing um, in the history of mankind. And it's interesting because um, unfamiliar people can have a great impact um, on different areas of life. This past Friday, uh, the beginning of the baseball, the Major League Baseball, kind of the second season began. Uh, those of you who are baseball fans, go Braves. Uh, those of you who are baseball fans uh, know that the All-Star break comes right in the middle of the season, and then a few days later, um, it kind of is a fresh start, uh, even though you're in the middle of a season. It's kind of the, the second half of the season is almost like a, a little season in and of itself. And so if you're a fan of baseball, you'll watch and you'll see uh, new faces in the lineup. Uh, you'll see pitching rotations that'll change. Uh, and you might even see a, a player or two who is literally just called up from, from the minor leagues. And in some cases, those players who people's names we don't know and they come from places that we really aren't familiar with, um, they may have a huge impact um, in potentially winning a playoff spot for one of the major league teams. And so unfamiliar people can have a huge impact. Uh, this is probably uh, more true in one of the most famous baseball players of all times. His name was uh, Joe, and this relatively unfamiliar player was born to an Italian immigrant family in Martinez, California. He was one of five sons, and he, they, all their sons followed their father in the fishing business there in California that he started, uh, except for Joe. Um, Joe didn't like the smell of fish. And Joe didn't like the work that came with being a fisherman. His dad called him lazy and worthless. And so Joe decided that he would try something. And so he signed up to play for a semi-pro baseball team. And he had fun with it. He didn't make much money, but he had a lot of fun with it. Until one day, his brother, who played for a minor league team that was a full-paid position, called him up and said, hey, our shortstop is injured. Can you come down to the field today and just sub for our shortstop? Well, one thing led to another, and this man by the name of Joe had a record-breaking 61-day consecutive hitting streak in the minor leagues. And one day, the New York Yankees got attention of Joe, and they called him up, and he went to play in New York City. And at the time when he arrived, the people of New York wouldn't have known Joe. But after 13 years with the Yankees, 
after 13 years and winning nine World Series during that time, being selected to the All-Star team every single year, and three of those years being the AL, the AL Player of the Year, the, the MVP for the American League, uh, Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper, became one of, the base, one of the greatest baseball players ever to play the game, arguably. And so unfamiliar people can have a huge impact, and that's true of these minor prophets. Their stories and the messages that they were delivering from God really may seem a, a bit strange, but their impact was huge. And your impact can be huge for the kingdom of God. My impact can be huge for the kingdom of God, although we may think of ourselves as somewhat unfamiliar people and maybe obscure people. Today, as a way of review, I, I, I want to walk through um, just some kind of nuts and bolts, maybe some foundational things about these minor prophets that hopefully some of you picked up um, over these past few weeks, but maybe haven't. So I'm going to ask you to open your notes this morning, and you can take a look in your notes as we kind of dive in. We're going to be taking a look at one of these minor prophets, but a lot of what we're doing today is kind of bringing things to a conclusion and reviewing. And I want to begin with what we have learned so far. What have we learned so far from life in the minors, from these minor prophets? Well, there are several themes that I believe are consistent themes with the minor prophets. And I want to highlight just a few this morning. There are more than these four that we're going to talk about. But I want to highlight these because I think when you're studying the Bible, one of the things I want to encourage you to do when you're studying God's word is to pick up on themes that you see from chapter to chapter and book to book because that tells the story of what God is really doing. The first theme that these minor prophets conveyed on behalf of God, sent from God, is they confronted God's people with their sin and challenged them to restore their relationship with God. These prophets, they confronted God's people with their sin and challenged them to restore their relationship with God. I've told the story over these past few weeks, but at this particular time in the nation of Israel with the Jewish people, God's people, um, they, would, they had cried out for a king, and God answered them, and, and he gave them a king. And in response to God answering their prayer, the nation of Israel remained faithful forever. <laughs> no, that's not true, is it? If you know the story of Israel, they didn't. In fact, very quickly they began to rebel against God and they began to do those things just the opposite of what God wanted them to do. In fact, three kings into the monarchy of the Jewish people, the people rebelled and 10 of the 12 tribes left the original kind of group of Jewish people uh, that God uh, had established the monarchy with and the kingdom was divided, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And so we have a period of time where God's people are stubborn and they're rebellious and they're unfaithful to God. Does that sound familiar? We do the same thing, don't we? God answers a prayer that we have. We cry out to him to help us through a particular situation. And when he does, we answer him not with gratitude and honor, but often we answer him. With rebellion and disobedience and stubbornness, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's my pattern. And so the prophet's first theme is that they confronted God's people with their sin and challenged them to restore back that relationship with him. And so the gist of these prophet's messages were, were pretty similar all, th all throughout. 
Um, it, it, was kind of, it kind of went this way. Um, God is holy. Man is sinful, largely sinful. And, and calamity would befall the people if they didn't turn back to God. That's one of the themes that we see all through these different prophets is some sort of calamity. But there were other common themes. There were other common denominators among the story and, and the messages that these prophets pronounced. God's amazing love, his grace, and his offer of second chances if people would turn back to him. And that's point number two. They wanted to show the extent of God's grace and love and that the message of salvation is for, I want you to say that next word, all people who return to him or turn to him. And so it was a contrasting message of the fact that our sin separates us from God, but God's people or anyone can restore or have a relationship with God if they turn towards him. You see, the prophets didn't just stop with this calamity and pointing out sin and this seemingly condemning judgmental message. They went on to explain that a turn, a 180 back towards God would restore the relationship with him. And each of these prophets predicted or prophesied that God's grace would be extended to those who would turn towards him. The good message of these prophets, the good message, the whole message of God and man. And thirdly, they preached that God is jealous for his people. We looked at that last week specifically and demands that they make him first in their lives. We talked about when we looked at Zephaniah last week that God is jealous, and here's the bottom line about that. When we think of jealous, we think of this insecure jealousy that we have. Do you know what I'm talking about? The kind of jealousy that causes young teenage boys to have fights with other boys because they're jealous because another boy's hanging around their girlfriend. It's a jealousy that we have towards maybe our husbands and wives or our spouses, it's based on sin, and it's based on insecurity. But I want you to hear this this morning. The jealousy that God has for you, because God is perfect and he's holy, is a pure, righteous jealousy. It's the jealousy that caused him, and we'll get to this part of the story later, it caused him to provide a way of escape or an escape from the penalty of sin. We'll talk about that in a few moments. It's the jealousy that caused him to, to so deeply love humanity that he would do whatever it took to reestablish that relationship, even though sin existed. And so a common theme is God is jealous for his people and that he demands first in their lives and he, they go on to talk about what it means to be first place. But perhaps the most common or familiar or, or most important of all the common denominators is this. Point number four. They prophesied of the one. They prophesied of the one who would come to bring peace and redeem God's people back to him. They all pointed to the one who would come and take care of this problem between a holy God and a sinful man. 
And so often, if you've been a part of church for any length of time, sometimes during Christmas season, um, a pastor or maybe a church will focus on some of these prophets because their message laid the groundwork. It prepared the way to talk about the one who would come. And we, in 2014, we at this point in time of history, we have the great opportunity to look back and see that what they were prophesying about the Messiah was accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and through his death and burial and resurrection. More on that in a moment. Each of these prophets pointed to the one that would come and bring peace and redeem mankind. And so they had these themes, God's anger towards sin, his grace his offer of second chance, his love towards mankind, his de jealous desire that we make him first in our lives and that he would one day provide one to take away the penalty for sin and pardon our sin. These men were minor, but make no mistake, their message had a major impact in preparing the way for Jesus to come. The only reason we call them minor is because of the length of the books that they wrote. They, they were much shorter. In fact, the one we're going to take a look at here in a moment, Zechariah, his was one of the longest at 14 chapters. And so they were called minor prophets because of the fact that they were shorter books. Now, some have asked me why I chose the four that I, I chose. We, we've taken a look so far at Jonah, and we took a look at Micah, and we took a look at Zephaniah, and now Zechariah. There's a few reasons why I chose these four. Um, number one was I chose them in, in chronological order. Now, we skipped some of these prophets because uh, we didn't have 12 weeks to spend on them. Uh, but we chose four that kind of went in chronological order. And so we've gone from uh, about 750 years before Christ with Jonah to about, five, uh, about 650 years before Christ with Micah. And Zephaniah and Zechariah are in like the four to 500 years before Christ. And so I was hoping that through this series, you could get a picture of the history of the nation of Israel, which was so important in the whole history of God redeeming mankind. And so I chose it chronologically, but also I chose it for their messages. Jonah's message of his life is a fantastic message. It's a, it's a message that we can learn that delayed obedience, as we talked about, uh, is really disobedience unless you act upon that obedience now. We learned really from Micah that the, God's love is so much greater and so much more amazing and so much more meaningful when we look at it in light of his anger towards sin. Some of you have a church experience where you would hear uh, a pastor talk about God's anger towards sin, and it brings back some bad memories, but I want you to hear this today. Uh, God's anger towards sin is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Because in light of how angry he is towards our rebellion and towards our sin, his love and his salvation is so amazing and beautiful. And we learned last week from Zephaniah that when we become spiritually complacent or self-reliant, that we can and we should turn back towards God. And that means a 180 from the direction that we're currently heading, a complete turnaround. And so we learned that from Zephaniah. Today, we're going to bring a message and, and kind of close this series by studying Zechariah. And part of the reasons I wanted to put these back to back is they sometimes are confused. We've got Zephaniah and Zechariah. So we can just say Zeph was last week and Zach is this week. Is that cool? We can talk about it in those terms. Zeph 
and Zach, okay? All right, and it's not Z-A, it's Z-E. And so hopefully this will help to make some distinguish, uh, to help you to be able to distinguish between those two who might uh, be so similar in their names uh, that they're confusing. A few facts about this prophet, prophet Zechariah, and some of you will be counting how many times I get these names mixed up now because this is, is hard sometimes to get them right. Uh, Zechariah, there we go. Zechariah's uh, whole book is 14 chapters uh, in length. And it was written to the southern kingdom of Judah after 70 years of the southern kingdom being in exile in Babylon. You see, at some point in the uh, 400 or uh, 500 years uh, to 600 years before Jesus came, the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and they took captive and they sacked Jerusalem and they completely destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. And so the people of God were taken captive for 70 years. Zechariah's message is one of the few that's written after the exile's over. After 70 years of being in captivity, God's people were released and they went back to the southern kingdom, back to their hometown, Judah, and they went back into Jerusalem. And this message is written to those who were exiled and those who came back into Jerusalem after they were released. And chapters 1 through 8, about half the book was written very early in Zechariah's life, around 520 B.C., it was written when he was relatively a young man, and chapters 9 through 14 were written almost 40 years later, almost 40 years later as we see Zechariah getting into his old age, and Jerusalem was completely and utterly destroyed when he begins this book. These people came back to their hometowns, and, the hometown, and I am sure that they were completely discouraged by what they saw. They walked into Jerusalem, and everything was a complete mess. It might have looked like New York City on September the 12th, 2001. It was a disaster. But as one of my pastor friends is known for saying, if you're not dead, God's not done. Don't you love that? And so the people of Judah, God was not finished with the work that they had to do. And this message was written as an encouragement to them. It was written to give them hope. One of the very unique characteristics of this book is, is that Zechariah had eight God-given visions that he unpacks in his first seven chapters or so. And they're interesting, and most scholars say that uh, they were a little bit disjointed and we won't go into detail today on what those visions were, but I just want to give you a sampling of three of them real quick. He had a vision from God of four horns and four craftsmen, which was a representation of God's judgment um, on the nations that afflict Israel, that afflict God's people. There was this vision of the, uh, the surveyor with a measuring line that Zechariah had that God gave him that was a representation of God's future blessing on a restored Israel. And then a, another example is there was a, a vision of a woman in a basket, and this was a representation or a meaning of the removal of, of the nation of Israel's sins or, or rebellion against God. And, and those visions kind of set the stage. Don't miss this, because the, the visions aren't important for this particular message series. They're important in the whole history of what was going on in Israel and in the Jewish culture. But they're important for us today because it sets the stage that God was not done with this people. 
that he had a future plan even when they thought they were through. Even when they thought they were completely finished. And they walk into their town, they walk into their capital, and everything is in disarray. And it's complete disaster. And Zechariah brings this message that God wanted them to hear. And there are three things that are unique. And these are the things that I want us to learn today about this message of Zechariah. Three things that are unique. First of all, the book of Zechariah gives the most detailed account, the most detail about the one who's Jesus who would rescue his people and reign over all the earth. Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. And here in Zechariah, 500 years before that happens, we have some of the most intricate, detailed explanation of what was to come. Now, now put yourself in the shoes of someone who's a part of this nation. There's this obscure person who comes and gives this uh, very interesting message about your future. And he describes in detail what's going to happen. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Probably not. He had these visions. I mean, what, what do we most of the time say when people have a vision? Okay, here we go. You got a vision. Okay, this is going to be interesting to hear what your vision is. I would imagine that most of the people who were listening to this man were wondering if this guy was off his rocker. And that's why we're privileged because we get to see it looking back. They had to trust it looking forward. And so the first thing that's unique is that the book of Zechariah gives the most detail about this one who would come. Let me give you a couple examples of what Zechariah did by giving very, very detailed information and explanation of what Jesus would do. First of all, he is the prophet that predicted or prophesied that Jesus would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Take a look at Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. And so we see here that Zechariah correctly prophesied that Jesus would come into Jerusalem to his moment of salvation, the moment of his death, on a donkey. Pretty amazing, isn't it, that that came true? We read in the Gospels, all the Gospel accounts have this same story. The second thing is he predicted or prophesied that Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Look at this. He also correctly prophesied this in Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wage. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wage 30 pieces of silver. He was telling the nation of Israel that this one, or the, the kingdom of Judah in this case, the Jewish people, that the one who was going to be the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And he was right if we read the gospel accounts. Thirdly, he also correctly prophesied that Jesus would be born from the house and the line of David in Zechariah 12.10. Look at this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas. For mercy on the house of David so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced he also predicted or prophesied that he would be pierced and he was they shall mourn for him as one mourns only 
for a child and bitterly weeps over him as one weeps. Now, why is it important that this man, Zachariah, who had these crazy visions, why is it important for us in 2014 to know that he correctly prophesied that the Messiah would come? Let me tell you, it's this. The fact is, is that he was 100% accurate, which could only have meant that God sent him with this message. It could only have been God who orchestrated Zechariah to give this message to the people of that day and to us today. See, I often say that God's past performance is an indicator of his future ability, and that's true. Zechariah gives us the confidence to know that that can be true because God was at work. This was not a false prophet. And in terms of things to come, which this message series is not specifically about that, Zechariah prophesies that one day Jesus will reign. Take a look at Zechariah 14.1. So we know that he was right about past things, we can also know that he's right about future things. Look at Zechariah 14.1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women, women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the next few verses he says how he is going to take care and, and punish those who do these horrible things. Look at verse 9 as he ends this. He says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. Listen, if you're in here today and the future worries you, if the future scares you and you're a Christ follower, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, Zechariah's word here should give you hope and confidence that you do not need to be afraid for the future. God is in control. And sometimes we have the tendency to look at our past and we can see God orchestrating things in our past but very rarely does that give us confidence for the future, right? Am I right? That's why we still worry, right? We're human. We have failure. We have things that bother us. We have worry. We're concerned about what may lie ahead. If you're in here today and you're a Christ follower and you believe the Bible to be true, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the future does not have to be scary because Jesus will one day come and he will still reign and he will be in control. And so Zachariah's message was one of hope for the people then, but it should be a message of hope for us. Point number two, Zachariah encouraged God's people not to grow weary in their work in rebuilding God's temple, but to rely on God's strength to finish the task. And by the way, they did. Most theologians believe in about four years they finished rebuilding the temple. Zachariah's job was to encourage them to keep on. Listen, Christ follower, persistence is so important in the Christian life, isn't it? Being persistent is so vital to us. And I don't know about you, but those of you who know me well, there are days that I want to throw in the towel. Is anybody else with me on this issue? There are days that we want to give up, isn't it? Aren't there? 
There are days that we want to quit and we want to throw in the towel in terms of the job that God has for us. And if you are in here today and you are a Christian, if you believe the Bible to be true, if you've given your life to him, he has a specific role for you to play in his kingdom. My challenge, my encouragement to you is do not give up. Do not give up. Hilton Head Island Community Church started seven years ago this year. In some ways, for me, year seven has been the most difficult year in a lot of ways. There are times when we want to give up on the work that we're doing for God. Because let me tell you something, whether you're full-time in ministry or whether you are a volunteer, the work of God may be fulfilling at times, but is it extraordinarily difficult, is it not? It's extraordinarily difficult. Whether you're trying to reach that lost mom or dad or that brother or that sister who you're not sure if they know Jesus Christ is their Savior, or whether you're trying to reach out into your community, maybe here or somewhere else, or whether you've been on mission overseas doing work for God, the work of the ministry is not easy. It's extremely difficult. And Zachariah's message to the people then and to us now is to continue the work. Look at Zechariah 6.15. He says this, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. He says there are replacements coming. There are others who are going to help. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass. Listen to this. Please don't miss this. This is so important right here. Listen to this. And he says, and this shall come to pass. If, if, if you will diligently obey. I want you to say that word with me. Obey. It's a tough word to say, isn't it? If you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Zechariah is saying the temple will be complete. Now, in Scripture, there are two kind of promises of God. There are two different types of promises. There are promises that are unconditional. Salvation is an unconditional promise. All you have to do is believe, admit you're a sinner and believe. There's no work for you to do. But we see in Scripture that sometimes there are promises of God that are conditional. Look for the word if. The word if. There's a condition on it. I had a good friend who used to explain it this way. There's a premise and a promise. In this case, the premise is if you obey, that means follow God, then you will complete the work. You see, we don't, we don't need to strive to be righteous and holy just to, to make ourselves look good. Uh, Zachariah's message to us is that we need to obey God and the things that he's called us to do so that we can finish the work, so that we can complete the job. The premise is our obedience. The promise is that he will give us the strength to finish it. That's a good word this morning, isn't it? It may be something that you needed to hear. I know I needed to hear it in the weeks leading up to this message. Trust me, I needed to hear it. And Zechariah paints an incredible picture in Zechariah 8. Take a look at a couple of these passages. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord, this is 8, verse 2, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her great with wrath. 
he goes on to describe in verse 4 how old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Now remember, they've come into Jerusalem and everything is just in disarray. It's disaster everywhere. And he paints this beautiful picture, verse 5, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of his people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. He paints this beautiful picture, and then he says it. He gives us the place that we can draw strength from. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the host of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. Everything in Jerusalem during this period of time had to do with rebuilding the temple. My question for you is what is your temple? What is the job that is God has called you to do? What is the role that he has called you to play a part in? Don't ever give up because God will finish it if you obey and follow what he wants you to do. Thirdly, the last message from Zechariah, the last theme that is significant and unique, is nearly 40 years passed from the completion of the temple that Zechariah was encouraging them to build to the time when God's people are waiting patiently, and during this 40-year period, there's angst, there's impatience, there's a, a journey of patience and impatience, and Zechariah goes back, and the rest of Zechariah from chapter 9 to 14 is him cautioning the people to not be in a hurry because God is in control, and it's his time frame. See, here's what happened. They got done rebuilding the temple, and the moment that they got done rebuilding the temple, the people of Judah were like, okay, we're ready for the Messiah to come now, God. <laughs> like, we're done. We've done our part. God, now do your part. They wanted him to come and come right now. And Zechariah goes through this beautiful poetry and this beautiful literature in chapters 9 through 14. And he paints a picture that we need to be faithful and patient while we wait on God. Some of you are in here today, and you've been a Christ follower for a long time. And you kind of feel like the people of Judah with Jesus' second coming. Like you look around and you go, man, I, I don't know if I want to raise kids in this world. I've had moments like that. I don't know about you. I, I don't know what the future holds. When I watch the news, it discourages me. When I think about the future, I get down and depressed because I am starting to doubt whether Jesus is ever coming back again. This is a message for those of you who are Christ followers. Zachariah's message to you is be patient. Remain faithful because you and I are not the ones who are in control. He is the one who's in control. And his timing is perfect. His time frame is perfect. I want to wrap up today with what we've learned from these minor prophets. Four quick messages from these minor prophets. Things that we can learn and take home. First of all, number one lesson that we learned 
is that God is perfect, and he demands that from his people. Whoa, that's a strong statement, isn't it? God is perfect, and he demands it from his people. These prophets went to God's people and challenged them to get back to obeying the laws that were given by God to his people. And you know how many there were? How many laws there were? Over 600. So today as you leave, we have a list of 600 do's and don'ts. And when you receive them, I'm sure you'll be so excited about living perfectly according to them, won't you? I'm just kidding. We're not really doing that today. But what if we did? Would you go home? All right. This is awesome. Our Sunday fun day has been canceled, and now I have 600 things that I have to live up to for the rest of my life. You'd be excited, wouldn't you? you go, well, now I can live perfectly in light of all this. Now I know because I can do it. No, you wouldn't be like that. You'd be like, are you kidding me? 600 rules, and I have to keep them? You see, what the law does and what God's focus on rules does is it shows how holy he is. We look at those Old Testament laws, and we don't like to study them. We don't like to focus on them. But what they do is they show how great God is and how far on our own we can come from achieving perfection. You see, disobedience to the law means that God is perfect in his character. And that's one of the messages that the minor prophets remind us of. That while he demands perfection, listen, whether you're a Christ follower or a seeker today, you can never achieve it because of sin. And that's the second point. Sin is real and it leads to eternal death. Sin is real and it leads to eternal death. Each prophet described some sort of destruction, some sort of calamity that would take place some sort of evil that would come because of sin, and, and that was a representation of death. If you read the New Testament, Paul takes it even further, and he says, he describes eternal death because of our sin. That's just the way that it is. You see, there are a lot of Christians and pastors who speak of the goodness of humanity, and, and certainly I believe, listen, I believe that God can give you the strength to overcome those things in your life that you struggle with. I believe that wholeheartedly. But that's an endorsement of God, not humanity. Are you with me? That's an endorsement of his work in your life, not your work in your life, because sin leads to death, and it is what separates us from God. So whether you're a Christian already, whether you're a Christ follower already, or you're here today maybe seeking something, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you the truth, that sin separates us from God, and it leads to death. And before you say, well, but I've done some really good things, before you go there, because that's a slippery slope, look at point number three. There's no one who has sinned more or less than anyone else because there's no one without sin. But let me just talk to you this morning. Point number three, there's no one who has sinned more or less than anyone else because there is no one without sin. I, I just want to talk to you for a moment this morning. Here's the thing. In our economy, we place value to sin, don't we? I know this is lengthy. I know it's heady, but I just want you to stay with me for just, just a few moments longer. We place value on sin. F for instance, if I leave here today, 
and I get in my Ford F-150 and I drive 90 miles an hour down the wet roads of 278 and there's a cop, I'm going to get pulled over. And, and, and I'm going to get a ticket that will cost me a couple points of my insurance and probably a few hundred dollars at the very least. But if I go home and I don't like the way that my neighbor parked in his uh, yard because it kind of was over in my yard and I go in my house and, you know, I, I start uh, just doing things to his yard and destroy his yard and I take out a gun and shoot it up in the air, I'm going to get in serious trouble, right? Am I right? Certainly on Hilton Head you'd get in trouble for that, right? We place value to sin. Please hear this today. God does not place value to sin. The earthly consequences of different sin may have value, but God views it as binary. It either is sin or it's not sin. And so if you're here today and you're like, boy, I've lived a great life. I really have, like, honored God with my life. Maybe you have. Maybe that's true. But the one time that you didn't means that you're a sinner. And it means that you have a separation from God. And so God doesn't place value on sin. He levels the playing field. And Romans, the Apostle Paul says, that we all have sinned. And fourthly, and here's the great message, we had to be redeemed from our sin so that we could be restored back to God. You see, the minor prophet's job was to highlight the gap between us and God. And in light of our sin, when we think about restoration, we think that it may be impossible. But, please don't miss this, he decided to provide a redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Messiah to save us from our sins. In light of our sin, we think redemption, and we think that is inconceivable. There's no way that that could ever happen, but God provided one who would redeem us. He decided to close the gap with sin. So if you're here today, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to challenge you and invite you to do that. So that you can have eternal life with him one day. You know, it's interesting. At first glance, when we look at these prophets, as we've done over these past few weeks, we look at them. And we see judgment. And we see condemnation. And destruction and penalty for our sin. But that's not the overarching message that the prophets were trying to convey. Here's why. When we look at those things, it's all about us. Isn't it? It's all about us. How flawed we are. How shameful we are. How guilty we feel. The prophet's message was really about the fact that God is God. And it's not about you. I'm sorry, it's not. And it's not about me, but it's about the one who saved us from our sin. The one who is strong and mighty and jealous for us. And his anger towards sin was muted and taken away because of his grace and his strong love towards humanity and he demonstrated that by sending his son Jesus to die for the payment of the sin that we see in all of these prophets and my prayer for you today my plea my appeal is if you're here today and you're far away from God you've accepted him years ago but you're far away from him turn back now don't let any more time go by turn back to him and if you're here today maybe you're seeking or maybe you're just wondering, or maybe you're dragged here. I don't know. 
and you always feel guilty and shameful about the way that you are. God sent Jesus for you to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin. And if you put your life in him, if you give your life to him, you can have eternal life in heaven one day. Father God, thank you for the message of these prophets, these obscure men whose messages sometimes don't make sense, who may seem confusing, confounded. But God, their overarching message is not about us, but it's about you and your strength and your love and your justice and your grace. And we say, and we give glory to you. We say thank you and we give glory to you for what you have done, Father God. And I pray for those who are in here right now who have never placed their faith in you. I pray today, right now, in the quietness of this room, for those who are covered with grief and shame and guilt, I pray that it would no longer be about them, but I pray that they would lay that at your feet. In light of what you've done, God, I pray that they would give their life to you. If you're here today and you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, maybe you've been right on the edge so many times, but today something just clicked, something about the verses or maybe that was sung earlier just clicked and you want to give your life to Christ, I'm just going to invite you to pray a prayer, a very simple prayer, just in the quietness of your heart and mean these words to God when you say them. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. And thank you, God, that I don't have to pay the penalty for my sin. Today, I accept you, Jesus, as my Savior. If you prayed that simple prayer to God with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand up real high, just for a moment. I won't embarrass you, I promise. Raise it real high. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else pray that prayer this morning? Just in the quietness of your heart, you prayed that prayer. Anyone else this morning? Father God, thank you so much for those who raised their hand this morning. God, I thank you for those who have said yes to you over these past few weeks. Because the message of these minor prophets is not one of condemnation. It's not one of sin. Although it seems like it at first glance. God, it's about what you're doing in the course of human history. God, we thank you and we give you glory and we give you honor. For you are the strong God. You're the one that's jealous for your people. And you're the one that provided the way of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray.